When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Full of frustration. Silly mistakes again. Full of despair. I don't even know if I'll have a club tomorrow. From years of hurt, disappointment and relegation. It could be League Two next season. Bolton are down, Norwich are down. Two British football fans have had enough. Canary Bird Elliot Holman and Wanderer Henry Hewitt are in search of glory. Get in! Pride. Been a joy to watch. Passion. Nanny! In search of silverware. MLS Cup champions, baby! And they found... ATL. Orlando! Major League Soccer. Welcome to the MLS UK show. It's the latest of our isolation interviews. Now, if you want to listen back to anyone we've spoken to so far, then you can uh, head to YouTube, search MLS UK show, and also on your podcast provider. Remember to subscribe while you're there and give us a rating as well if you've enjoyed them. I'm delighted to say today in the latest interview, uh, we're joined by ESPN's lead MLS commentator and all round legend behind the mic, John Champion is with us. How are you, John? Very good, thank you. Yes, I mean, these are difficult times, I think, for everyone. Tragic times for many. But yes, I'm bunkered down at my my house in the Cotswolds, so I'm back in England. I was actually due to come back because we did our first two games of the MLS season. We did a, a game at LAFC to open up and then another game at, at Portland. And then we had a three-week gap. So my wife and my youngest son, who's at school in the United States, uh, and I all came back on a long-scheduled two-week trip. He was meant to be going to visit some potential UK universities because he's got a year of school to go and as we were on the plane between Boston and London Heathrow President Trump announced his travel restrictions and now we can't go back so we came back for two weeks we've been here for nearly nine so far so we're just uh, we're just glad we didn't rent our house out otherwise we would have been homeless and stateless as well so no we're, we're doing well thank you talk about uh, the right timing then if you're on the plane as he mentioned these restrictions yeah, no, we got on thinking that this situation is looking a bit dodgy around the world. But the indication there was that we could probably manage two weeks back in the UK and then get back to America. So it was um, with some surprise, I'll be polite and say surprise, that we got off the plane at Heathrow to be told that the route back had been blocked. And of course, it's a, it's a nuanced uh, approach to who can get back into the United States at the moment. If I was a US citizen, I could go back. If I had a green card, I could go back, but I've only been working in the US for 15, 16 months full time and living there. So I haven't got to the stage of having a green card. And so for that reason, I just have a work visa and a work visa is not enough to get you back in the country at the moment. So we have to wait for those restrictions to be lifted. So it's going to be interesting if MLS returns to action as is mooted on July the 1st in Orlando, whether I can get back in time to do those games or whether I'm going to have to find a, a television screen somewhere in London from which to commentate on them. Yeah, I was going to ask this. I mean, you know, how, because there's a lot of talk about giving, you know, letting all the teams go to Orlando or playing behind closed doors or whatever. Uh, I guess for you, you can't get back anyway. But um, how would you feel comfortable commentating in that sort of situation? It, it, it's an interesting one. And there's some debate, certainly internally within ESPN, as to whether if the tournament goes ahead, 
uh, we would commentate on site or whether we would just go to ESPN's headquarters in Bristol, Connecticut and, and do the games from there. Because of the, the safety angle, I think Disney, the parent company of ESPN, uh, are nervous about having their people fly, but they're going to have to fly cameramen and sound people and match directors uh, and various other technical staff to Orlando if this does happen. So these are issues that they're wrestling with at the moment. But you'll notice I mentioned Disney there. And of course, there's a big Disney tie-up with this whole thing, because if it goes ahead, the, the stated venue is the wide world of sports in Orlando, where they will quarantine, I think, all the teams, all 26 teams in the, the various resort hotels. And then they'll play maybe twice a week. There might be as many as four games a day, from what I'm hearing, if it happens. And this could go on for four, six, seven, eight weeks. They get the bulk of the league season out of the way in uh, something that's dressed up as a tournament. So there will be a separate prize, as I understand it. The, the plans, I think, change on a daily basis at the moment. And then once you get to the end of that tournament, maybe round about early September, there'll be a number of regular season matches still to play. The hope is that restrictions will have eased to the point where teams can return to their home venues, even potentially without supporters there, play those games, and then you still have the playoffs. And the, the one major benefit that MLS has compared to other leagues globally is that they are so early in their season, they're only two games in. And so I think there's still some rather optimistic hope that they could get a full season in. I think the greater likelihood is that they get a, a partial season in, but a recognisable season that will sit in the history books as a, a proper sporting competition. That's certainly the hope. Do you think then that's why um, MLS seem to be a lot further down the road with their plans than, say, the Premier League, just because they are so earlier in their season? They can, they've got all this time to, to work out what they want to do. They have got time. Um, they're also in a position where they're in a country where the, I think the, the direction in which the United States is heading um, is more difficult to predict because basically there are 50 people deciding what's going to happen in the country, the 50 governors of the, the states rather than particularly the president at any one period in time. But I think they, they're looking at Florida where things are beginning to, to open up. Um, and I, I just think the, the Premier League are much more in governmental hands because as we sit here at the moment on what May the 13th, um, we're looking at the government next rolling back some of the restrictions potentially on June the 1st. And if things are not in place for that to happen, then that stymies the Premier League. They are, they're finished in terms of trying to get restarted on June the 12th, which is their, their stated aim at the moment, because government will just take that away from them as a possibility. That's not the case in America in quite the same way, because there are so many layers of government in place. Uh, and also, I think that the discussions that have taken place between federal and state government and MLS and other sporting bodies as well, because let's not forget that the NBA are looking at Orlando as well as a, a, a possibility. Uh, MLB have looked at Orlando as a, a possible venue as well. So it could be a pretty busy city come July, August time. Uh, but I just think for those political and organisational reasons, it becomes rather easier for a league like Major League Soccer to look at restarting rather than the, the giant Premier League with the governmental restrictions that it faces too. There's going to be one or two questions that I'm going to ask you that are basically just out of curiosity uh, to speaking to you as a football commentator. And the first one of those, John, is can you, well, first of all, can, do you watch football back differently to the rest of us are you analyzing what the commentators are saying and then can you watch yourself back and do you think oh, I could have said this here or, or I should have mentioned that there yeah I, I think you have to be your own biggest critic one thing you don't get working as a broadcaster generally is much directional guidance you'd think that if a tv company is investing in a 
particular member of their so-called talent, whether it's a presenter, a pundit, or a commentator, they would work to make the best that they can be. But you, you don't get any advice. You don't really get any feedback. The mantra generally is if you don't hear from them, you're doing fine. Um, so no one will ever ring you up and say, look, you could have done this better. You should be doing that better. Stop doing this. Start doing that. Um, it's down to you, really, to try and make those judgments. I find it difficult to listen to myself. I always have. Um, I listen to other commentators, probably with a particularly critical ear, but just because I would apply that same critical ear to myself. So, yeah, I think we do watch the game in a slightly different way. The, the other, I think the biggest difference of all, though, is that we watch a game without any commitment to either side, whereas the vast majority of the audience are watching it through rose-tinted spectacles with regard to one of the teams. And that's why so often you'll come away from a big match, you know, where you've had an audience of millions and maybe social media decides that you've done Liverpool, Manchester United, or in an MLS context, you've done Atlanta against LAFC. And half the people on there would be saying, oh, you were so biased in favour of LAFC. And the other half are saying, well, you were so biased in, in favour of Atlanta because people who are totally committed to a cause will listen to a neutral and will perceive in something that we've said or the tone in which we've said something uh, a bias towards one side or another that just was never intended. But in answer to your original question, Henry, I think it's that lack of um, an alliance to either side. That, that's the biggest difference in the way that a professional broadcaster watches a game of football. So, do you, assuming you had an affiliation to a club when you were younger, do you kind of lose that a bit then if you, uh, if you are a football commentator? I think up to a point. I mean, my, I'm quite open in saying my team is York City. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, I covered them in those early days with, with BBC Radio York, and I still go and watch them when I can, maybe once or twice a season if I'm back in the UK, I'll, I'll go, and I'm very sad to see them in the sixth tier, but I've had some wonderful days watching them as well. I can recall either commentating or being a spectator when they've beaten Arsenal, drawn twice with Liverpool, knocked Manchester United out of the League Cup. I've seen them beat Chelsea, beat Everton. Um, so there have been some, some terrific ups and an awful lot of downs, but I still remember my first game, um, as a 12-year-old as a going to Bootham Crescent to watch them beat Newport County 2-0 in front of a crowd of 1,971. And, uh, and I remember I was smitten that day. It was the first time I'd been allowed by my parents, who were fairly strict, to go to a game of professional football. And it, it had been agony because I grew up a long goal kick away from Bootham Crescent, the, the home ground of York City. And I could hear the crowd on a Saturday afternoon. I could see the floodlights from my bedroom. And I was never allowed to go. And then suddenly... Um, I was, I was given permission to go one day, just before Christmas, uh, 1978. And, and I just remember walking into the ground, walking past the back of the main stand. You could hear the players' boots in the dressing room as they limbered up. You could smell the liniment coming out. And then I remember the taste of the bovril at half-time and the swaying mass of the crowd behind the goal as, as the play ebbed and flowed. And this was the side of, of life that I'd never really seen before, this sort of communal experiencing of, of sport. So uh, I, was, I was hooked. And um, yeah, that, so I do have that affiliation to York City. Since becoming a sort of national broadcaster, I probably only had to commentate on them two or three times. And even then, you can manage quite easily to shelve that affiliation for the day. And you just treat it. The most important thing is the broadcast, not the result of the match. I think that's the way to put it. As you said there, your first taste of uh, football was slightly different to what you're used to now, especially having commentated on the Champions League finals, World Cups and FA Cup finals. Do you have a particular favourite event to commentate on? I love doing the World Cup. I've been 
astonishingly lucky. I've done eight of them so far. So my first was Italy in 1990. I got sent as a 24-year-old by uh, BBC Radio. I just joined. And within a couple of months of joining, I got sent to Italy to, to host the coverage of the World Cup for BBC Radio. And that was just the most amazing experience. And that's followed on. Every World Cup has had a different flavour to the most recent in Russia, which I spent travelling around with a mad Scotsman called Ali McCoist, uh, who was doling out history and um, sort of sociology lessons to the nation as we as we went around. And um, and I was a bit concerned about what a World Cup in Russia was going to be like. I've been many times to cover European games, and it's never been the easiest of experiences. Uh, but the World Cup was fantastic there. So I think if you're asking me for an event, it would be that that once every four years extravaganza where you do feel the whole of the football world coming together. And it's, there's a sort of rarefied atmosphere to those events. There's just a, an undefinable extra importance that accompanies everything that happens there. And you also know as a broadcaster, those are probably the defining event, events in your career. If you do them well, then you get a chance to do another one four years down the line and you can build your career. If you do them badly, you don't get another chance. So, yeah, I think most of my favourite memories probably stem from World Cups. And now, of course, we know you uh, from ESPN covering MLS. Uh, when you moved over there, how did that come about? I was the lead commentator for ESPN when they set up their UK station and they had Premier League rights between 2009 and 2013. And then they withdrew from the UK marketplace and BT Sport came in and took their place in the scheme of things. And during that 2009 to 13 period, the big American parent company got in touch and said, would I uh, go to South Africa and commentate on the World Cup for them in 2010? But they got to me after I'd already signed a contract to work for ITV, the main commercial broadcaster in the UK. So I politely said no and thought little more about it. But then four years down the line, ahead of Brazil 2014, they asked again. And this time I hadn't signed a contract with ITV at that point. And so I decided I would take the plunge and just experience something a bit different. So I signed up to work for ESPN in Brazil. And as part of that, they gave me a little contract for nine or 10 other games. So they flew me out to San Francisco just before the World Cup to do the US against the might of Azerbaijan. What uh, thrillingly was the final sports event ever at Candlestick Park, long time home of the 49ers, uh, before they blew the place up. And going back 30 years, when I did my traveling uh, at the age of 19, I bought myself a Qantas round the world ticket and the first stop was San Francisco, and I went to watch the 49ers when Joe Montana and Jerry Rice and people were in their pomp at Candlestick Park, and I'd always wanted to go back. So it was a great thrill to call the last ever sporting event in that iconic stadium. But going back to the purpose of this particular story, um, I signed this deal to do several MLS games as well off the back of the World Cup. The World Cup went terrifically well. It was wonderful um, experience because I'd never seen an event broadcast on that scale in all my days with the BBC and ITV and other companies in the UK. I mean, if I tell you that uh, ESPN needed to have a good studio base for Brazil, because as you'll appreciate from watching the Beeb or ITV, where the studio is at these big events is crucial because there's so much screen time from the venue. And all the world's broadcasters wanted to be on Copacabana Beach in Rio de Janeiro for the 2014 World Cup. And ESPN were first to stake their claim. And whilst most broadcasters managed to scrabble together the funds to buy a little scaffolding platform on the edge of the beach and to have a couple of cameras and a little garden shed studio, ESPN bought a yacht club instead. Didn't rent it, bought it. $13 million or something it was said to be. And that was their venue for the, um, for the World Cup. They bought this yacht club and that became our base. And it, it was just done on a scale 
that I'd never encountered before. And the way they looked after all of us on the road, and you were working with these stellar names. You know, we had people like uh, Ruth Van Nistelrooy on the team, Michael Ballack, just people uh, who were the cream of the crop because ESPN, American broadcasters, are good at flashing the cash when they need to attract that top-level talent. And so they were able to take their pick, whoever they wanted, to be part of their team. So that experience was great. I then went and they gave me uh, Portland, Seattle to do off the back of the, the World Cup. They gave me a couple of games in Kansas City. Uh, they were very clever in giving me the best games to do in terms of the experience. And I was doing matches in front of sellout crowds, you know, 60 odd thousand in Seattle when Seattle played Portland at CenturyLink Field. At Providence Park, Portland, which is one of my favorite venues anywhere because it's just so genuine, authentic. It feels like a proper football stadium, even though it was originally designed, I think, for baseball. Um, so I had a, a terrific experience doing all of this. And then at Christmas of 2014, there was a phone call from the guy that was uh, in charge of the production for ESPN and their football, their soccer, saying, I'm coming to London, will you meet me for lunch? So we met at a pub in Chelsea, not far from Stamford Bridge. And he said, uh, look, this has all gone very well. It actually went better than we expected. Um, and it's now our ambition to persuade you to come and work full time in the United States. Will you do it? And I said, well, I'm flattered by your interest. And yeah, I've had a great time. It's been wonderful. I'd love to further our sort of professional relationship. Um, however, I've got four kids. They're not at the right age to move. It would be too disruptive to their education. And I think in truth, at that stage, I probably wasn't quite ready. I hadn't got my head around exactly what football was in the United States properly, but I'd had these good experiences. So he accepted that it wasn't the right time. But he said, I'm going to ask you every year until you say yes. And that's basically what happened. We'd, we'd meet in the same pub in Chelsea. The offer would be extended. And then it happened again in 2018. And Amy Rosenfeld, who's the overall coordinating producer for soccer, a very senior figure within ESPN, widely respected for soccer coverage across the United States because she's been doing it for 20, 25 years in production. Um, she said, look, quite honestly, now is the time to do this because we're opening up ESPN Plus, the streaming service. We're buying lots of new rights. We have ambitions to try and improve our Major League Soccer coverage. Taylor Twelman, who's the main analyst, wants you to come. Um, we, can, we can make you a decent offer. W will you do it this time? And I just thought, well, hey, what am I waiting for here? I've been doing this since 1984. I've done everything that I could possibly hope to and more in the UK. I'm not necessarily turning my back entirely on the UK. Um, I mean, I was back in January and December doing Amazon and various things for the Premier League as well, which was a lovely diversion. So I, I'm able to do that a, to a, a small degree as well. Um, so I just thought, yeah, I'll take the plunge. And weeks later, I'd signed a contract. And then February of 2019, I was, I was moving to another country, um, which was... Uh, it was a daunting experience because I think most people, if they do decide to go and work in America, they do it towards the start of their working careers, maybe in their 20s or 30s. I was doing it in my 50s. And it meant moving my wife and the youngest of our children over there as well. But Disney, the parent company for ESPN, were fantastic in terms of helping with education and accommodation. We now have a very nice three-bedroom apartment in Boston, uh, which is our American home that we rent. Um, and yeah, we've gradually become sort of semi-Americanized, which is it's wonderful before this rude interruption for all of us and i can't wait to get back at it of course uh well great story and um you, you mentioned taylor there you've been working closely with him and then we know you in the oh. uk for your work uh, working with ali mckeist and craig burley um what I'll, another one of these questions that i've always wanted to ask is have you ever when you've been uh doing a commentary and your co-commentator has said something have you ever thought 
you're going to get some stick for that when we've finished. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it, it happens, and I'm sure that the co-commenters have sat sat next to me, and the roles have been reversed. And I'll have said something, and they'll have thought you're going to get some stick for that when we've finished, and they're probably right as well. But there are you do have to be particularly careful now as opposed to 30 years ago because everything is picked up on and obviously amplified by social media that just didn't exist when i was starting out doing this so even as recently as uh christmas time i think i did uh yeah 27th of december we did wolves manchester city where wolves came from behind to beat manchester city in a thriller at, at molyneux i called that game for amazon prime with jim beglin who's just one of the best uh, co-commentators out there has been for years I was lucky enough to work with him on the radio then at ITV and now uh, with with Amazon um, I also did games that were broadcast around the world in the Premier League with him for many years and and he's great and he, he never puts a foot wrong but he made a comment and I can't remember what the genesis genesis of it was but he referred to the snowflake generation in the in the middle of the commentary and uh, social media went into meltdown and um, and he's he's the sort that he's very aware of Twitter. He's very active on Twitter, and I think he had a little look, and I could almost see the colour sort of draining from his face at at one point as he realised that this this comment had had drawn this, I think not particularly called for reaction. But yeah, you you do you do get that, and um, you also get some you get some odd choices as co-commentators as well. Um, you know, I remember uh, doing stuff with Paul Gascoigne at, at one point, which was an interesting choice. Um, and another one, I mean, I greatly enjoyed his company always. And he was one of the most perfect of gentlemen, but Sir Bobby Robson. I remember we had him, I think, at Euro 2004 with ITV, back in Portugal, where he had such success as a, as a manager. But he was, he was well into his 70s by that stage. And there were very hot days. And I remember we were doing, I think it was the quarterfinal uh, involving England. And we had to be at the ground four hours before. And poor old Bobby because he was such a hero there, we had to smuggle him into the ground and we just sat in the commentary position. And it was so hot that he went to sleep and we struggled to wake him up in time for the start of the game. So yeah, co-commentators um, present their own challenges from time to time. So John, the last question I want to ask is, uh, of course, computer gamers know you from the Pro Evolution series. Um, just tell me when you're recording that, what's it like? Because you must have to name every single footballer in the world, right? Yeah, you do. And you have to do it with different inflections. So you do eight or nine versions of each name. Uh, so it would sort of be Ronaldo, 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 this sort of thing. But you have to do it for maybe 5,000 player names. Uh, so it's, it's mind numbing. You go in the first day of the first year that you do it to a studio in Soho in London, usually, and you're booked in for maybe eight, 10 days straight eight-hour days just sitting in this room without a window, microphone, pair of headphones, and a pile of scripts, you know, this big. You, you, you can't see out from behind the scripts on the first day. And that's the most mentally challenging part of it when you realise you've got to go through all those bits of paper. Fantastic. Uh, well, John, our Zoom call is about to finish, so we're going to round up. But I could talk to you for much, so much longer. Thank you so much for joining us, and let's hope you're back commentating soon, but when it's safe to do so. Absolutely. Hope everyone that stays safe and well and sane as well at the moment, because this presents its own challenges, doesn't it, in terms of, of occupying one's time. But it's been a, a treat to, to talk to you, Henry, and we're all back watching MLS again before very long. This is the MLS UK Show. The MLS UK Show with Lucid FC, a distinctively modern, casual fashion label. 
Take a look at lucidfc.us or lucidfc.co.uk and see why celebrities love the look. This season's current line is called What's Your Effing Club? Which is your ref? Football, fashion or film? If it's football, you're in the right place. Film, the MLS UK show podcast is now available to watch on YouTube. But fashion... It's always lucidfc.us or lucidfc.co.uk. MLS UK Show with Elliot Holman and Henry Hewitt. So there we go. That was my chat with broadcasting legend John Champion from a few days ago. Uh, thanks to John for joining us in the latest of our isolation interviews. Uh, you can listen back to any of our interviews uh, so far. We've spoken to Lawrence Wyke of Atlanta United, Chris Cadden of Columbus Crew and Patrick Segrist of New York Red Bulls, whilst it's been this downtime, let's say, in MLS, uh, you can go to our YouTube channel, MLS UK Show, subscribe while you're there, and also uh, on your podcast provider, subscribe, search MLS UK Show, and give us a rating as well, tell us uh, who you'd like to hear on the podcast, and if you've enjoyed our isolation interviews so far. Uh, Right, well, we'll be back next time, it may be me, it may be Elliot, it may be both of us, who knows? Uh, We're hoping and praying that MLS will come back soon, although we must stress when it's safe to do so. Uh, Since I spoke to John, there's not really been any updates. Uh, We're still uh, just waiting to see what's going to happen. The clubs are back in training, which is good, and uh, there's muting talks of this uh, mini-tournament in Orlando. So in whatever format MLS comes back, we'll be here every step of the way. We'll see you next time on the MLS UK show. I've been Henry Hewitt, and thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network.